Hello and welcome to episode 207 of Motherhood in Hollywood. I'm Heather Brooker and today we are going to talk all about the Sultan Sea. If you follow me on social media at all, you know that I have this weird fascination with the Sultan Sea, which is about uh, two hours, three hours south of um, Los Angeles. We are going to talk to the director and writer of a new documentary called Miracle in the Desert, The Rise and Fall of the Salton Sea. Ooh, wasn't that dramatic? All right, here we go. Come on, Mama. Grab your popcorn and goobers. It's time for Motherhood in Hollywood with your host, Heather Brooker. This is a crude prude's perspective on being a full-time mom in showbiz. She's not a perfect mom, but she can play one on TV. Hold on to your butts. Here's Heather. Hi, friends. It's so great to be with you again. Um, I know I've taken a little bit of a break. I seem to be doing that a lot lately, but hey, coronavirus. Um, (laughs) I'm giving myself a little bit of grace lately, as I hope you are as well. There's a lot happening in the world from politics to the pandemic to parenting. And I think that we all just need to cut ourselves a little bit of slack. That's sort of been my mantra lately whenever I can't get to an email or get to something that I had wanted to get to for the day. Um, What's happened lately is I've been sort of overworking myself and I'm fully admitting that my husband has known this for some time, but I have overcommitted myself and overworking myself to the point where I think it's physically made me sick. I have had a cold for about two weeks. No, it's not coronavirus. I don't have a fever, Um, but I definitely have had congestion um, and just pure exhaustion. A lot of it, too, is the air quality here in L.A. has been really terrible because of all of the fires that are happening. Um, Anybody else just feel like at one point the world was ending? (laughs) Like it just seemed like every day there was something new, terrible that's happening. Maybe it feels more heightened here in California because we do have the wildfires. Um, And at one point the sky was literally orange and um, it just seemed like the world was coming to an end. You couldn't breathe outside. And on top of that, everything going on with politics, you know, um, the pandemic still rages on. People are very upset about having to wear a mask. They don't want to wear a mask. Um, Everything going on with Black Lives Matters and, you know, the racial injustices that are happening. It's a lot. It's a lot. And if you don't take a minute to process everything and, and realize that you can't fix everything. Like I'm one of those people that feels like I need to do everything. Like I should be posting about this. I should be writing about this. I should be talking about, you know, X, Y, Z, but I cannot physically do all of those things. So I'm cutting myself some slack a little bit. At least I'm trying to, um, because it has physically, I think it's physically taking a toll on me. Um, and I know I'm not the only one. I know that there are other people who are, who are feeling a physical reaction to what feels like the world coming to an end. But I am a big believer in this too shall pass. We will get through this. You know, if you look back through the history, history for me has always been the biggest grounding presence in my life. If you look back through history and through time, you could see that other generations, other people and other moments in time have been through far worse 
than what we are going through right now and survived and, um, you know, continued to carry on. So while it might feel like the world is ending right now, it isn't. Um, it's bad. (laughs) Things are bad. Things are not great. Um, but you know, we will survive. I think, you know, something that I'm struggling with too is trying to reconcile the fact that my career is not exactly where I want it to be, at least in terms of acting and performing and writing. It's not exactly where I want it to be. And that is not going to change for probably quite some time because the entertainment industry, probably more so than any other industry, at least, you know, maybe from my bias perspective, but the entertainment industry is crumbling. It is, um, you know, they're losing billions of dollars. Movie theaters are closing by the hundreds across the country. And that's going to have a ripple effect on the type of movies and, um, that get made and, you know, television is moving at a much slower pace now, although it is moving again, which is great, but television production is moving at a much slower pace. So there's going to be a ripple effect for a long time because of the industry. And I, as an actor, had really thought in my career I would be starring in a sitcom by now. I thought that I would be, you know, a series regular on a show. And that dream feels so much farther away, so much farther more out of reach. I'm not giving up on it, but it certainly does feel a little insurmountable right now. And I know I'm not the only one in the industry who feels that way. I know there's so many people that came out here with hopes and dreams and were on the verge of doing something great and find themselves, you know, kind of at a loss for what to do next. So, um, while I try to figure that out, I'm exploring other sides of, my talent to my skill set. And, you know, maybe that's why I'm juggling so many things is I'm kind of hoping to see what sticks. (laughs) Um, but regardless, uh, I just want to take a moment and kind of give some encouragement to you guys, especially my fellow actors. If you're feeling a little lost, um, it, it will, we, it will come back. Things will change and things will turn around. So for now, start making your own content, start doing your own thing. You don't have to wait for Hollywood to come back full-fledged to start creating your own content, creating your own web series. I mean, look, shows on NBC are airing uh, right now that are done fully over Zoom. So, you know, there's there's opportunity here to get creative if you just, um, if you look for them and you, you know if you have the time to, to put into it. So I wanna encourage everybody to kind of look for, look for different ways to get creative during this time. Um, all right. So I can feel my voice fading, but I want to get to this interview that I did with Greg Bassinian. He is the writer and director of a documentary that I absolutely loved. I'm a big documentary nerd to begin with. And I love documentaries. I love seeing, you know, um, this other sides of life and other parts of life. And in particular, for some reason, I'm weirdly fascinated with the Salton Sea area. I've been down there a few times and each time it's just this wasteland, like this time gone by, this wasteland, this Mad Max feel to it um, of a moment in time that just never sort of recaptured its former glory. And if you're not familiar with the Salton Sea, it is um, 
this documentary will definitely be worth your time. It is the largest man-made lake in the state of California, and it is virtually unusable because of years, decades of mismanagement and um, natural disasters that have hit the area. So take a moment to watch this documentary. Um, It'll be worth your time. It's truly wonderful. And I cannot wait to share this conversation with you uh, with Greg Bassinian um, about Miracle in the Desert, the Rise and Fall of the Salton Sea. First of all, I have to say, I am so glad that Annie, your publicist, reached out to me about this because I have this strange obsession with the Salton Sea and that whole area of um, that whole part of California. It's fascinating to me how it used to be, apparently now over many times, was um, a sought after place to be in a booming area and now is just sort of left in ruins. And I would love to know, first of all, what drew you to this topic yourself? So I was, I don't know when it was, I must have seen or heard something about the Salton Sea. Uh, a lot of people just kind of know about it, you know, and one way or another. And I think I had seen a YouTube video on it. And like a lot of people, I saw the ruins and this, that, and the other, and I was kind of fascinated. So uh, I took a weekend, or not a weekend trip, I took a day trip out there just on a Saturday with a friend of mine and we were like, Hey, let's just go see it. And when we got there, I was just taken aback by the whole situation. And specifically we got, when we got there, we went to the North shore, which is where the yacht club well, still is, but was very active and all that stuff. And it was just very striking to me that there was nobody there. There's nobody on the shore. There's no boats in the water and how large the sea is. I think it's hard for people to understand how big it is. So that was just kind of, I was very taken aback. And I don't know why, but I felt very, very compelled to find out why. And that was the big question was, why is nobody here? There has to be, there didn't need to be, in my mind it was, there doesn't need to be a concrete reason. There's no silver bullet necessarily. But what happened? And the other question was, why? How did this even get here? So that's kind of the general how I stumbled upon the whole thing was was by going there. There's obviously some kind of <clears throat> there's obviously some kind of magical pull that that area has on people because I felt the same thing. My husband and I um, just sort of stumbled upon it three or four years ago when we were down in Joshua Tree for mm-hmm. uh, my birthday, and we um i had seen pictures online and i said hey let's take a drive down and take a look at this because it looks kind of interesting and just couldn't believe how desolate it was this big beautiful body of water and not a soul in it and there's nobody there there's nobody there and the smell it you know was horrific um one of the things that fascinates me is um the people that you talk to the people that do live there yeah um what was your understanding of why they still live in that area? It's a combination of things. I think, you know, for people that live directly on the sea, that live along the shoreline, you know, they love being there. They love the area. They love the sea. Um, they like being out in the desert. You know, it's a very specific climate that attracts, you know, people that want to be in warm weather um 
I think some of it has to do with the economics of the area. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot more affordable to live there. Um, and some of it, like uh, like Michelle, you know, you they, they know that there's an issue, but they can't just pick up and move. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that simple. So I think, but I think like the people that live right there, I think they really have a passion for the sea. I think they love being there. I mean, to be honest with you, if you go to Desert Shores, it's actually still the water. It's one of the few places that the water still comes up to the community. Mm-hmm. Even though the canals are empty, the actual shoreline still comes up there. So it's almost oceanfront living. I mean, it's actually very beautiful, this kind of it's probably a quarter mile stretch. And um, it's kind of nice to live there. It's just very quiet. I don't I think you know, people don't bother you and, and it's a beautiful place to live. Uh, it's just unfortunate that, you know, now the sea is starting to shrink very, very quickly, like very quickly. I think most people are familiar with the Bombay beach area. Mm-hmm. That side seems to be the hippest for Instagrammers. Um, in yes. The- <laughs> yes, it is. I'd be lying if I said I didn't take a few Instagram pics on that. No, yeah. I mean, myself. <laughs> the ruins and things are, everybody loves going there and doing photography. Um, what was fascinating to me as well as so much about the film is how it seemingly you can trace it back to one man's, I want to say, arrogance and greed that created the lake in the first place. And I know there was yes. a lot of people involved, but for me, it really felt like it was traced back to one person and their greed um, and vision, I guess, that yes. um, that kind of created this in the first place. Was that also your finding as well? Yeah, it was kind of, so uncovering that story was pretty fascinating. And the fact that it came down to uh, Charles Rockwood effectively, right? Mm-hmm. And here was a guy who, there's a lot more to that story that we just didn't get into because we didn't want to do all history. I mean, it's a lot to take in. But effectively, it was it was overly ambitious. I think the intentions were good to a certain extent um you know bringing water to that area of the valley uh you know really did transform that area of california but it was his call i mean he was the one that kept pursuing it and um didn't really let it go it's also unbelievable that to me that it went all the way up to the president at a certain point Mm -hmm. you know and that history in california I, i grew up in california I had never heard of it. Like that's, it's just not a part of history in California that really gets any attention. And it's a huge, (laughs) I mean, physically it's like a huge part of the history in that area that that whole farming area exists because of those canals and what he did. And yet I had never heard of it. And most people have not. Yeah. I hadn't heard of it either until, like I said, a few years ago. And I was like, what we live just like in two hours from the largest, you know, lake, but nobody can go in it what we have to go see this um and let's talk about um you mentioned the farms and the farming areas around it that seemed to be another major stumbling block and a major problem is the water rights issue you know i know a lot of that can get really technical and um you know uh, people might want to tune out when they start hearing about stuff like that but it really is essential um you know the the water rights that were granted or taken away or whatever the case may be at any given time over the past hundred years, um, really helped cater the lake and turn the lake into what it is now, which is essentially just this 
body of water that's kind of wasting away. Um, right. Were you given access to a lot of that information? Did you feel like there was anything that you weren't privy to in the documentary that could help shed some light on the water rights in the area and the, what the dealings with the farmers? Well, so one of the, I interviewed a farmer and he was very helpful in helping understand sort of what they were doing um, with the water district in the area. Like you mentioned, it gets very technical and people kind of just are like, eh, I'm not watching a movie to see water rights. Water it can rights. get really slow, right? Right, right. <laughs> so I think the key thing that was like, we wanted to get broad takeaways that informed the story, but didn't bog it down so much, right? And mm-hmm. I think the big one that was very interesting was that the Imperial Irrigation District, which controls all the water down there, was paying farmers not to grow their crops. So that was kind of a fascinating discovery was that here you have this huge farming area, but because the water demands were getting so high in other parts of California, they effectively told the farmers, stop farming, stop putting water into the ground, and we will pay you um, a fee to fallow your land. And that starts the domino effect because the moment you're not farming and you're not putting water into the ground, it doesn't run out of the field into the sea and the sea, the sea starts to shrink. So that was kind of the access. And, and of course we talked to Kevin, Ke- I talked to Kevin Kelly, who was the head of the IID until 2018. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they spoke to the broader issues, not so much to the specific water rights involved. Um, but, I mean, it's it's just extremely complex. I don't even know all the intricacies of, of the ownership. What we also skipped over was, if it even matters to tell you, but I'll, I'll tell you anyway. In the 80s, when the water like got very, very high and flooded out a lot of the communities around the sea, many of the farmers sued the IID because they said you put too much water into the lake and now it has covered up our farmland and so the IID again this is the technical stuff we didn't get into they ended up purchasing like thousands of acres of shoreline around the Salton Sea so now they own a lot of that shoreline and as that shoreline is becoming emissive they are worried that they're going to be held responsible for the air quality issues. Mm. I didn't. I didn't put that in the film. We didn't cover it. it I'm not. It, they're not to blame. Mm-hmm. I'm not blaming anyone. Mm-hmm. But that's one of the things that's also going on. Yeah, we have to talk about the um, the negative impact that this is going to have with the lake slowly shrinking and the water, you know, being reduced out of it. Um, it it seems to be having a greater and greater impact. And one of the things in the film that you talk about that I love is how the numbers don't lie. Like if they don't put money into it, the state doesn't put money in it to it to fix it. Now it's going to be exponentially more expensive and more difficult to fix yes. in a few years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the Sea tends to unfortunately fall victim to a lot of kind of natural issues and the one that happened to put this in perspective in the film they talk about how in 2009 there was a a plan that got actually put together by the state called the preferred alternative 
which they were potentially going to allocate $9 billion, which is, which is a good chunk to fix the problem. But because of financial crisis, that pretty much went away. Well, in 2018, the 10-year plan came around. The 10-year plan is not being stuck to. It's far, far behind. But it was a little bit of momentum. And then, of course, now you've got COVID and another financial crisis, mm-hmm. right? Right. So there seems to be this – the Salton Sea seems to be a place that just always encounters these obstacles from, from its genesis and the guy trying to get canals into the area to now – the degradation, environmental degradation, there's always these issues. And it seems like there's never a consistent plan that sticks. And to get to your question, I'm sorry, I'm rambling now. The the impacts to air are going to grow very quickly because the water, more water has been taken away. So even in my going back there, I was there the last time last October and then I went back in April of this year. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I was there in April of last year, and then I went back in October of the same year. The shoreline had receded two feet in like six months in some of the areas that I went back to. So, I mean, it's it's going down very, very quickly, and it's just going to continue to do so, and it's going to emit more particulate into the air. And as these fires are happening, we understand now what, what that means to people who are in the area that have to breathe that in. I think what I wonder too, and you know, you're absolutely right. It, I just was watching and I thought I had no idea all that stuff also happened in the eighties. And then, right. you know, the genesis of when the lake began had so much trouble. This area seems like it can't catch a break. Like right. maybe it just never should have been messed with to begin with. <laughs> well, you know? so, so people say that like, so if you, if for some reason you follow <laughs> us on Facebook, we have like, 6,500 people and they're very active but a lot of them say that they kind of go it wasn't supposed to be there in the first place why are we worried about it shrinking right Mm -hmm. and the truth of the matter is it actually was there so historically speaking that basin has filled up with water many many times um, over the course of several thousand years we didn't cover that in the film because again it was like a whole tangent and we wanted to focus on the issue at hand now. But the Salton Sea you see now is not a weird thing. That area has been filled with water. It was called Lake Kawea, and the Kawea Indians, or Native Americans rather, lived on that lake. And you can see the water line from that lake on the uh, mountains as you drive past the Salton Sea. So it's actually not weird. The, the uh, Colorado River used to naturally flood and do the same thing. It's just that this particular version of the Salton Sea was effectively caused by human interference to a certain extent. Got it. But water being there, water being there is not odd. And in like prehistoric times, the Gulf of uh, the Sea of Cortez actually, like that whole area was just part of the Sea of Cortez because it's below sea level, right? So Mm -hmm. it just actually used to be ocean. Well, I um... I, I think what I wonder when I look at all of this and I see all these people that live there and, you know, the potential um, ecological problems that could be happening, you know, in the near future, it sounds like. It may not even be five, ten years away. It could be even sure. sooner than that. I just wonder, will it ever get fixed? Does does the state, do do people in the state legislature, do people in the government, do they care enough or or fully understand the crisis that's happening down there? And will 
is there hope? Will it ever get fixed? You know, it's that's a tough question to answer because amidst, you know, many other things, now there's the Salton Sea. And right now, obviously, there's, you know, millions of acres on fire. Mm-hmm. So the attention gets diverted to the, the task at hand, the crisis of the day, effectively, right? Mm-hmm. So as... Uh, uh, Michael Cohen's uh, says it uh, says in the film, um, you know, it's a slow moving problem. It's not like a forest fire. It's not like a freeway collapse. Mm-hmm. So people don't pay attention. Will it get fixed? I think ultimately it will be one of those situations where it will get so severe that they will have to suddenly come in and do something quickly. What about um, like a it, class action lawsuit or any, has anything like that been filed against the state? Cause I feel like, you know, um, uh, filing a lawsuit always gets people's attention. Well, uh, you know, it's a great idea, but the people in that area just don't have the financial wherewithal to, sure. to do that. I mean, look, if I'm not familiar with class action, I think you don't necessarily have to pay. It's like a lawyer goes out and does that and puts a class together, I think. Mm-hmm. But but either way, they're just underrepresented to begin with in state legislature. Mm-hmm. You know, the Imperial Valley is not a place in California that a lot of people have on their radar. And I think another thing that's funny is like the Coachella, you know, Coachella is right there, the festival. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, maybe if it starts affecting that, people will start to pay attention, ironically enough. Like yeah. if you can't have... If you can't have Coachella or something, or if they get hit with a dust storm, um, maybe people will wake up to it. Um, I hope that there will be at least some sort of a reasonable mitigation project that goes through. As far as full-scale restoration, that's difficult to propose, but the resources are there. It's just, you know, who's going to take it on and, and execute it? Well, Greg, I am, just like you, very fascinated, as I said, with this part of our state and our part of this part of our country. And um, I loved your film. I loved oh, learning more about it. I loved, um, you had so many wonderful interviews and so many, you know, people who are so well informed and passionate about this area. Thank you again for taking your time. I really appreciate it. I sure. do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for listening, everybody. If you want more information about this, head on over to motherhoodinhollywood.com. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on this podcast. I appreciate it so much. That's going to do it for me, everyone. Have a wonderful week. And remember, I'm not a perfect mom, but I can play one on TV. Bye. Mama funny. Balls.